Hello and welcome to Off the Record. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and I'm excited to say that today I am here with Franz Nikolai. You may know Franz from playing in bands like The Hold Steady and his own solo work. As well, he's played on records for bands like Mischief Brew, Leftover Crack, The Dresden Dolls, The Loved Ones, and tons and tons other, including Against Me, Star Fucking Hipsters, and Frank Turner. Needless to say, Franz is a really, really adept musician. We get into a lot of that, and as well, we talk a lot about a really cool book that I've had the pleasure to read uh, that is a tour diary of his travels through the former Russian state as well as Russia um, called The Humorous Ladies of Border Control, touring the punk underground from Belgrade to Ulaanbaatar, which I'm probably messing up the pronunciation of. That book is out August 2nd. I highly, highly recommend it. When we did this interview, I was only about halfway through, and since then I finished it because it was so good. I kept returning to it even though I have other responsibilities in life. It is super, super great read about how punk and the world has changed, and it really is an amazing breadth of knowledge in the way he sees the world. And I think it's I think it's really, really cool if you want to get a better worldview on punk's effects in the world and the history of Russia and stuff like that. So without further ado, we get into all sorts of things like Franz's creative process and how this book came to be and a ton of other cool things. So check it out. Wait one second. I want to tell you first about Noise Creators. Noise Creators is a company that was started by Johnny Minardi, who runs self-titled management, works at Equal Vision as an AR guy, and used to be at Fueled by Robin and myself. I'm a record producer and mastering engineer who's been at it for over 20 years in the punk scene, and I wrote the book Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business, which is one of the most popular books written on how to promote a band in the modern music business. We're here to try to help musicians get with better producers. We can help musicians get a better deal and work with real top talent instead of the guy who just opened a studio down the road. What our site offers at noisecreators.com is a way to get to know all the best producers in the game today. You can browse profiles, listen to Spotify playlists, listen to podcasts, read interviews with them to get to know them, look through bios and discographies and a bunch of other stuff. We also have a great blog where we're helping you get to know the best musicians today. We're profiling the best underground bands that haven't really popped yet and doing lots of other cool stuff. If you want to support Off The Record, it really helps to support noise creators and help spread the word about it. The reason I'm able to keep doing Off The Record is with the popularity of noise creators. So please help spread the word and check out what we do. And if you know bands who are going to go into the studio soon, tell them to look at noise creators before they do. Thanks so much. Nice to be talking to you today. Um, can you tell the audience about your background in music? Yeah, so I um, went to... NYU studied music there. Uh, I had a split split major where I basically did uh, jazz performance and classical composition. So all my um, all my piano classes and improv classes and ensembles and stuff were in the jazz program, and all my composition, arranging, orchestration stuff were all with the classical folks. Um, and then basically I joined bands <laughs> after that, and just kept joining bands until something stuck. Um, uh, I was in the World Inferno Friendship Society for seven years between essentially 2000 and 2007. Um, I was in the Hold Steady from 2005 to the end of 2009. 
I was a touring member of Against Me in 2010. Um, I was in a, uh, several other projects along the way, but those are sort of the, the boldface names. And then, um, and then I toured as a solo act basically from, from 2010 until, until the present. That's the, that's the, the, uh, the capsule bio. Not, uh, nice. I like the, the, uh, bold face names. It's a, it's a, uh, good way of putting this. Yeah. So- and then I did session work for, and, and, you know, guest performing with people like leftover crack Dresden dolls. Um, um, what I, you know, there's a whole list of things. Yes, the the, the list on, on Wikipedia is very extensive for anybody who wants to look that up further. Um, I didn't even know that you had played with some of these people, and we've known each other for quite a long time. Um, so, you've written a book that I, is why we're talking today. Um, despite having known each other for a long time, I've uh, I've known you've been doing great solo work for a while. And so this book takes place, it's 2012, your tour through the Eastern Bloc-Russia, is that correct? Yeah, so that's where it starts. It, it, it ends up covering a couple of years, 20, 2012 through 2015, I kept going back. One of the things that I had figured out about doing solo touring, and this was, there were, there were basically two people that I had seen that gave me, gave me sort of ideas about the way you could do solo touring. One was uh, when I was with World Inferno, I, um, I was on a, we were on a, a tour bill with it was against me. We're headlining, and it was Cobra Skulls and and Sage Francis. If you mm-hmm. if, you, if you remember him, totally um, uh, hip hop guy who traveled. He he traveled by himself in a little Honda Civic with all his merch and his all his beats were on an iPod, and it, he was just like a self contained uh, self contained thing. And I sort hmm. of filed that away as like even if you're first of four making a hundred, you know, whatever he was making that on that tour, probably not that much. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just you. Um, traveling light like that, you can you can you can do pretty well. And then um, I ran into Matt and Kim once in an airport, hmm. and they were on their way to Alaska. And I said, "Well, that's so that's so cool. What are you what are you doing in Alaska?" And they said, "Well, we're we're playing one show in Anchorage, and they're backlining the whole thing, so we don't have to bring anything. And then we're just going to go on a vacation to Alaska because we wanted to go there anyway." Hmm. As said, asked our booking agent if we could set something up and I was like oh that's a that's also a great idea you know if you're if you're if you're not a five piece band you can just decide you want to go somewhere and then and then make it work by playing shows and so I had always been fascinated by going to to eastern europe and and the slavic countries particularly and so when I started doing solo touring I would I would split up my european tours I would do a couple weeks in germany where you know you where you could make a little money, and then I would do a couple weeks in places that I just wanted to go, so that even if I was breaking even, um, you know, I would I would be you know driving around Romania or Bulgaria or Serbia, and then eventually Ukraine, um, and and that's how that that's how that came about in 2012, partic- specifically. Um, my uh, I my wife and I had been tr- had been trying to figure out how we could do the Trans Siberian Railroad, and I met a kid from St. Petersburg who was one of the people. You know, there's a there's a there's a the same sort of DIY and punk network in Russia as there is everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And and I met this kid who was who was one who was someone who could book a tour in Russia, and said he would. Um, basically, Russian speaking Eastern Ukraine. And then Russia proper. So so he um, he booked us a month long um, tour from Ukraine all the way out to to Lake Baikal in Siberia. Um, and uh, just piecing together other tours, we 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 ended up. She had just finished 
finished grad school, so we had some time on our hands. So we, we, we pieced a bunch of different things together and ended up being on the road for six months going around the world. We did uh, across the U.S., all around Europe, um, uh, in a car, and then got on a train and, took the, and took, did train touring all the way from eastern Poland to Beijing. So pr- pretty cool. So um, what interested you about the area initially? Is it that where your ethically uh, background is from? Or is it more that that's just the music you were interested? In? I know that you get derive an influence from that. Yeah, all of the above and uh, and the political history, um, which is all sort of they're all sort of tied together. Uh, my ethnic background contains elements. of you know, I sort of I describe myself as a Habsburg mongrel. <laughs> Um, you know, I've got some uh, ethnic Germans who lived in Romania, mm-hmm. um, ethnic Italians who lived in Crete <laughs> and, and some, and some anyway, but, uh, and, and one of the, one of the, one of the scenes in the book is going to visit one of my ancestral hometowns, which is now in Romania, which is, which was having seen, having drip, having been there for half an hour was plenty. <laughs> of time. I would let me, I'll, I'll just say that. Um, um, but yeah, the music I had gotten as an accordion player, I had gotten really obsessed with, with particularly Balkan music. Um, and, um, and, and was really f- fascinated to go to to Romania and Bulgaria and and the former Yugoslavia for that reason, um, and then the political history, p- particularly the the twentieth century his- history, is just is just so deep and so complicated, um, and it's always um, it's always you know it's always interesting to to see the the places where things happen, um, mm. and that was one of the fascinating things about as the book developed and as the, as I kept going back and back over the years to move from driving through these places and trying to have to imagine the history. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden in 2014, when I was in Ukraine, um, being in a place where the history was actually taking place. That's pr- pretty cool. And I think that that's one of the interesting things. So you keep uh, talking about the political thing. So, you know, what's I think very rare for a tour diary is at the end, there's a bibliography because what you're actually doing is you're drawing from a lot of political and history books. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do is uh, the, the the travel books that I like are the ones who have a, who do offer a little bit more context. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, particularly in the Eastern European sections, one of the books I was really influenced by was uh, a book called Black Lamb and Grey Falcon by a British writer named Rebecca West, um, who traveled around Yugoslavia uh, in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, and she was basically trying to figure her her aim was to figure out what you know this is in the wake of World War One, which was kicked off by a political assassination in Sarajevo. Um, and she and she her, she wanted to figure out you know her, our world was just destroyed by this war to end all wars what it, what is the history of this you know backwater region that caused all this destruction and so she travels around there and get, de- delves deep into the history and the literature and 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 um, and part of the narrative of her book is is the rising influence of of fascism and nationalism to where you can see where the next cataclysm is going to come from. Um, Hmm. And so, my so I wanted to prov- have, have some co- that that sort of historical context, and also my initial interest in the Slavic world in the first place, like like a lot of people who become Slavophiles, was reading Russian literature in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, 
And the, the Trans-Siberian Railroad in particular is one that is well-trod ground, you know, literally and metaphorically, for, for writers over the centuries. And so I wanted to compare my experiences to, um, to those of the people who had, uh, you know, from Chekhov and Dostoevsky mm. to Paul Thoreau and Ian Fraser, who had, who had written about um, these, the, this, the various Siberian cities, but also the, the, the railroad experience itself. That's very cool. And then you do two other cool things, I think, in this book, which is that you have one a map since, you know, as every John L. Oliver episode illustrates that everybody's totally illiterate of where things are on the map. And well, then my two... sister made that, actually. What's that? My sister made that map. Oh, did she? That's very <laughs> yes, cool. I'll give her a shout out for that, Ariana Nikolai. <laughs> nice, nice. And then uh, as well, uh, you have a playlist at the end of the book because there is some pretty crazy musical references from uh, inside the book as well. Um, I, I, I've been really liking that there's the ability to do that, especially like in the ebook format these days that now it's like, okay, you know, you're reading a music book. I can actually hear what somebody's talking about these days and you have such crazy music references. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the, it is, a it's a book about music. Essentially. It's a book mm. about, it's a, it's a book about DIY touring on these, on these punk networks. Um, mm. and and there's a lot of history there too, and you know, there's and I, that I delve into a little bit about about the role that that punk rock has played in um, in politics, mm -hmm. particularly in Russia and Ukraine, but also in former Yugoslavia, um, and and not always a not always a uh, constructive role. Mm. One of the one of the threads that goes throughout the book is that there was this initial generation um, in the '80s. Particularly in the '80s, of um, of punk rock and and punk influenced artists and musicians in in Russia and Ukraine and Yugoslavia that were part of the counterculture that were that had these impeccable counterculture credentials. And in the after the fall of communism um, and the troubles of the '90s, a lot of them take this turn um, in their thinking towards towards right wing nationalism. And I wanted to mm. sort of tease out why that why that was. That's very cool, and especially uh, with what we're seeing in America these days, I think it's uh, very, very pertinent. Right. I mean, the, the closest analogy I could find for you know aging American punks is is the ones that sort of take this this grouchy turn towards Ron Paul style libertarianism. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one, one of my least favorite phenomenons that I sadly have uh, friends that uh, veer toward. Um, so one of the things I think that's always been interesting about you too is that so you're you're talking a lot about punk rock, but you know when people think of what punk sounds like, they don't always think of the music you've made. I remember one of the coolest things you were doing for a while was this antisocial music thing where you yes. were taking other people's records and adapting a more orchestral thing to it. Could you explain to the audience a little bit about that? Uh, antisocial music was, uh, is what is, it still exists, although I'm not the, uh, uh, you know, it was something that I founded, um, and, and still continues. Um, it's a nonprofit organization. It's a composer performer collective. So presenting new, new music, new chamber music, um, essentially, um, you know, classical music is not, is not really the, the word for it because that implies a very particular kind of music. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but chamber music, uh, and and in unconventional venues, and we started this back in 2000, um, taking brand new works that that 
it was basically a, a way for uh, those of us who had just graduated from music school who were composers and couldn't get played by, you know, in, through the traditional channels. We would we just got ourselves together, you know, again, like taking the DIY model and applying it to to chamber music. Um, and we would put it on in 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 the club in clubs in Bushwick and in New, and New Jersey and and go on tour with it and um, and and um, and present you know a big part of it was was twice a year we would present concerts of all new of all new works um, so to keep to keep building the repertoire and um, and that and that continues um, one of the programs that I think might be what you're referring to is we started a, a program called Antisocial Music Sleeps Around, which is we approached people who were not from uh, classical music training, um, but who we thought had really, you know, were really interesting musical thinkers and might have something to say in that in that genre. Uh, we approached them and said, "Listen, we have." The, this ensemble, we have these composers who can help you translate your ideas uh, for it. Um, would you be interested? Um, and the record that we did of that, one side was uh, was with uh, his name is Alive, Warren DeFever uh, from Detroit, and the other side is Dialect. The, yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Group from 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 New Jersey, who did an, wrote an amazing uh, half hour piece for Amplified Orchestra that. Um, that I'm still I'm I'm still really really proud of that. So you've had um you know one of the things I I can uh, remember of our interactions I remember uh, talking to you one night I'm like oh what are you listening to lately because I always try to get into that and you're like oh I'm listening to Sparks but the late period stuff <laughs> so I go home and I put it on and I'm like you know there's so many people who will demean obscure tastes of people like they'll be hip bad hipster humor but i know you as one of the deepest deepest music lovers i know and i'm like well there must be something here so i'm gonna just keep trudging through it and i just could not find it i did <laughs> i then saw that you exhaustively listened to every uh prince song that is available to the public where do you see the, your exhaustive uh musical obsession coming from I'm just interested in sounds. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying all this stuff is good. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Um, I do try to listen to everything that other people think is good in case there's, you know, there's Same. almost always there's some little thing that you can learn from it, mm -hmm. even if what you learn is, I, is, I, is, is, uh, is what you don't like about it. Because that's also useful information. I mean, the Prince thing was like, I I am a huge Prince fanatic. I, mm. I really genuinely think he was a he was a genius. But I think he also did a lot of garbage. But um, but there's a way of think that that pop music fans consume pop music usually, which is that they have one or two records that are really the pinnacle that are that, that are what they like about a particular artist. And is often like early in their career, but those artists a lot of times go on and make ten or fifteen more records, you know. Um, and I always sort of think that if there's if somebody did something once that I really connected with, even even just once, I owe it to them as an artist to at least check out what else they've done, um, because if they're if the and because because if they if they're if they're a real um, if there's something real about their creativity, um, most of the time it doesn't go away. Sometimes it becomes less acute. Um, 
but often there are things, uh, you know, people go through fallow periods, right? This is the, this is sort of the Bob Dylan question, right? There's, but you know, Dylan in the eighties, you can, he went through, you know, at least 10 years of, of writing very few good songs. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, 15 years down the line, he hit another patch of creativity and, and has put, been putting out amazing albums again. Um, so this is, it's one of the weaknesses of the popular music industry is that there's no way to accommodate these, these fallow periods before somebody hits another, hits another, uh, you know, gusher. <laughs> hmm. I, I, I like that. Yeah. No, I, one of the things I always say is, you know, like when, um, you know, the, when we get together with mus- other musicians, you know, they all complain about having to hear somebody in their band's taste in music in the van, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe less so in the now iPhone era. But um, I always say, I'm like, you know, I, I take that time, especially in the studio, as to write down what I do and don't like, what I do and don't want to do, and try to find some way to learn from it. Because otherwise, that time is going to be spent being really, really, really enraged. Mm-hmm. It's also a good way of creating a, a, a hive mind creatively, mm. though. Um, this is this is an argument for collective listening in the van. Mm. Um, I'll use the the example of of World Inferno. Um, we had a nine piece band. Yes, everyone had really diverse musical tastes, and we toured a lot and <laughs> and all in, packed into to a van and and um, and and that was a really good time for sort of. Um, solidifying and getting it and and uh, our our collective creative sensibility is you know everyone bringing in their various music and listening to it in the van and and you know it getting critiqued sometimes harshly um, but um, but it was a way of expanding everybody's ears and and getting a sense for what we all had in common. And, and from that you that you know um, for people not familiar with World of Heroes like you know. I, I think it's a very funny thing that um, most of the band is my first call for when somebody's looking for a session musician because you guys were a great incubator for musical influence. Mm-hmm. Well, and the funny thing is that, you know, I think World Inferno, I see World Inferno get described very often as eclectic, and I don't actually think that's accurate. I think there's a very specific World Inferno sound um, that comes about when it goes, when, when a song is going through nine people's This Sucks filter. Mm. <laughs> You, you, and this is this is actually not necessarily a, a a a good thing, but you 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 do sort of narrow it down to to a particular sound that everyone can agree on, and and that's where we got to. I'm like on just the best party and Red Eyed Soul, for example. You know, it contained people call it eclectic because it contained a lot of things that you don't often hear in punk rock or in in pop music in general, but. Um, there, you know, there was a. It, it is a self. It was a self-contained aesthetic. I, I think, yeah. Sadly, eclectic just often means musical influences I don't understand. That's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, which is not the case. So, what and eclecticism the- for its own sake is not necessarily a benefit either. Like if you're just throwing together a bunch of things that don't that that don't you know if you're just making a gumbo. Mm-hmm. It does have to hang together aesthetically. Yeah, well, I think what I've been writing a lot about lately is that, you know, the um, eclecticism is when it's superfluous and it's just doing this to have an influence, it never feels authentic. And that's what we don't like about that. And that's actually why we don't connect with a lot of music. Have you ever experienced um, the difference between those things in your work? 
uh, ask me the question again. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, so I tend to find that there's times that people are trying to just superfluously throw an influence into their work as compared to actually authentically loving this and trying to bring it in. As a session musician, have you ever felt that you've had to kind of force a music influence in or anything? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm gonna. I, a lot of times, what I'm called in to do is play accordion on punk and rock records, mm. and the accordion, by its very nature, you know, I've, I've, I always make the joke is like you pick up the accordion, you're not picking up just thirty pounds of accordion, you're picking up the, you know, the five hundred pounds of cultural baggage that comes with an accordion, <laughs> and so, and. And to a certain extent, that's also the case with you know playing piano on a on a rock on a guitar rock record. But even more so with the accordion, you're almost always getting called in not to play, you know, not for accordion as 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 you know very versatile musical instrument. But you're called upon to, you're you're being called in to play accordion as cultural signifier. Mm. So you're you're playing you're you know you're playing a waltz very often. And they want that they're looking for an Irish thing or a circusy thing, um, and you know I'm happy to provide that. I used to push a little harder um, to sneak, you know, to do to do the Trojan horse thing and to sneak some to sneak my weirdo shit onto people's records. Hmm. Um, but I and but I found that that then you're just not giving them what they want. Hmm. And so that was that was a little more of my you know young musician um, bullheadedness. Hmm. Like I remember getting called. I played a bunch on on one of the Loved Ones records. Uh huh. It was pretty you know it's pretty straightforward rock influence you know rock influence pop punk. Um, and I wanted to put all this weird stuff on it, and they indulged me like I recorded double tracked singing saw on one of the records and on <laughs> one of the songs, and spent a lot of time doing that. And and you know what they wanted was organ pads you know? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and funny. pounding piano. They wanted Springsteen keyboards, yep. and so okay, so I was just wasting their time, and that's not really fair. That's uh, uh, that's, that's funny. Um, was this change at all informed? Because I know on your recent solo work, you've also had guest contributors come in. How has that changed your prism for anything? Well, I have guest contributors come in because I don't have a regular band. So mm-hmm. in a way, my, I have a free hand at casting. Mm-hmm. You know, so I look at the at the um, at the at the basket of songs for that project and try and envision what I want the sound of the record to be, and then ask people to come in based on that, which is something that an existing band doesn't necessarily have the freedom to do. Like for the last record, to us, the beautiful, it was it was for for me relatively straightforward uh, guitar based songs. Um, so I so I so I got you know Andrew from against me and Ara from leftover crack and slackers play mm-hmm. drums and um yeah one of the, one of the best drummers yeah one of the best drummers and one of the best guys yes agreed i just really got agree. to hang out with him at the recent leftover crack show yeah tremendous intellect mm. he's writing a book actually which i can't oh, wait really? that's so funny i wish he had told me that when we were hanging out um he, he plays it pretty close to the vest nice nice <laughs> nice um but um, but yeah, you know. But for the previous record, do the struggle. You know, it was it was these long sort of hallucinatory folk punk songs, but that had a had a bunch of stuff musically going on. So I got um, you know jazz guys who could read a read a chart, and then I knew it was going to be mixed in a weird way by a lot from dialect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we recorded 
I want I wanted to get people who were who could play almost any any style. So I because I knew I was going to be covering a lot of ground with those songs, and who could read a, a chart because because we were recording 18 or 20 tunes that were all really different and had this weird forms. So I wanted to just be able to write it out so we wouldn't waste a lot of time rehearsing. Nice. Um, so doing all this music creation over the years, did it make writing your book easier? No, it's a, such a different process. Really? Yeah. So can doing you... a, writing a book is way harder. Yeah. Well, well, you've also written less than I imagine you've written music though, too. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly it. My, I've been writing music for decades, and so it, it comes a lot easier. And I have all, all of these kinds of shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Whereas this was, you know, I, I sort of worked my way up, worked worked up to it. I had written some, you know, long form stuff for various blogs and magazines and stuff, and this seemed like the next natural step. But that's not to say that it, you know, I didn't want to claw out my own eyes, you know, sitting in front of the of the laptop. <laughs> um. And do you not normally have, when you're writing one of your solo records, the point where you want to claw out your eyes? No, not usually. Mm. I mean, the the songs, it's, sometimes it takes a long incubation period. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I'm not one of those songwriters who sits down at the desk every day and tries to write a song, whether it's ready or not. Um, I collect material. Um, when I, Usually when I'm on the road, I'm collecting material. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do, you know, an, an album cycle's worth of touring all over the world and write down, you know, various things that I think about when I'm driving. I, I, I'm always, I'm always collecting material from people that I'm from, from, from being out in the world. So just like wait a way that somebody said something that's re- that was interesting or like, um, you know, a description of the, of a town that I drove through that, um, you know, all these things anyway. So I, so I have this giant text file when it comes time to start thinking about writing another, um, record. So that's the lyrics. And then I do a similar thing, um, just with my iPhone recorder for little musical bits. And so eventually a time comes where I sit down with the, with the text file and with all the little musical bits and start fitting them together. And that usually, you know, it takes some time, but it's not, it's, that's sort of fun for me. Nice. And so, but were you not taking notes similarly for this book? I was, Mm. of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so that was helpful um, for certain passages, especially the, dest- the descriptive passages, like because I was doing a lot of the, especially in Russia and Ukraine, I was touring on a train, mm-hmm. which was a really interesting experience, um, not unlike tour bus touring, uh, because they're sleeper trains, so you have a compartment with a couple bunks, um, and you would be I, so I would play the show. And then the the, the local promoter dude would deliver me to the train station at you know one a.m. I get on the train, sleep, wake up in the next town, get off, meet the the other local promoter dude, and then and then have all day to sort of explore the explore the the city, and then and then um, and then play the show. Uh, so it it had the rhythm of, of of tour bus touring instead of like instead of the car touring where you're driving all day and you and you just get there in time for sound check. Uh, but my point being that uh, this was a lot of, allowed for a lot of downtime for taking notes, like staring out the train window, <laughs> trying to describe whatever happened last night or what I was dri- you know what we were driving through, and then and then just walking aimlessly around the city all day. 
um, or going to trying to see specific things. Uh, so I did have, in some cases, fairly detailed notes. In some, it, you know, they got better as it went along, mm. um, as the tour went along, um, just because I got uh, I got in the groove of it, uh, of being more detailed about the notes. Um, but I also didn't know exactly what the book was going to be until I sat down to write it. So in, in some sense, those those notes aren't as useful. And some of the and like you were saying, there's a lot of research based stuff in the book, and so that that takes a lot of time to to sort of um, sit there with my stacks of printouts and 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 integrate that. Very cool. Um, so what's next for you that you have coming up? What's next for me? So I'm working on a second book, which is going to be called uh, Band People, um, in which I'm doing a lot of interviewing. Uh, so I've interviewed right now about 70 people that are, prim- uh, that are um, let's say, um, the character actors of popular music. <laughs> That's so uh, cool. So sidemen, backing vocalists, bass players and drummers, um, you know, orchestrators, um, the people in bands that you know who aren't the people that you know from those bands. Um, to talk, talking to them about their working lives, you know. It's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pop music middle class that I think people don't usually think about mm-hmm. uh, and, and, a, and a disappearing one. But, you know, you hear a lot, they're, they're, they're the popular music aristocracy so you're 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 famous musicians and then there's a there's a huge pool of you know amateurs and semi-professionals um and then there and then there are people in their 30s 40s 50s who have been you know whether they planned to 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 have that be their career or not many of them don't um eventually you end up at a point where you've been in bands long enough where even if you wanted to 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 go and get a real job, you have a hole in your resume <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's prohibitive unless you just want to be a bartender or, you know, um, and so they have really interest, and these are not usually the people that are interviewed, and a lot, so a lot of them have really interesting thoughts about uh, creative collaboration, about, um, about the working lives of musicians, um, both financially and otherwise, about uh, group dynamics within bands. You know, bands are this sort of funny mix of uh, family and relationship and small business and creative collaboration that's not always, you know, you're reinventing the wheel every time in terms of those relationships. Um, and, and so that's essentially what that book is going to be about. Um, yeah, what's coming up? I've got a busy fall. <laughs> I'm I'm going to grad school actually. I'm starting oh, wow. via, uh for writing. Um and then and I'm doing some shows with the Hold Steady, which I haven't done in six years. I um, saw that, yeah. Um some anniversary shows for, for boys and girls in America. And uh yeah, so a bunch of bunch of stuff. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I, I I think that's great that you're going back to school for writing because already your writing voice in this book is so, so great. I literally blew through the pages that I was able to get through. And uh, this next book sounds really, really up my alley. I want to thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Jesse. It's always a treat to talk to you. You, you as well. And I look forward to uh, working together in about two weeks, three weeks. Yes, indeed. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to Off the Record. If you enjoy the show, the best way to say thank you is to share this episode on social media, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Tumblr, your whatever, and just tell your friends. We just want the word to spread. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's at Off the Record FM. You can get show notes, explore old episodes at OffTheRecord.fm. If you think we should be talking about something, please let us know with the hashtag TellOTR on Twitter or ask us via Tumblr at OffTheRecord.fm. This episode was produced by Jesse Cannon and Ashley Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week.